Welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. My name is Zach Adams, and I pastor a church located just outside of Athens, Georgia. The name of the church is Calvary 316. If you're local, I'd love for you to come and join us one Sunday morning. Our service is at 1030. You can learn more about the church by visiting our website, which is calvary316.com. Again, that's calvary316.com. Regardless of where you're listening or specifically how, whether you're joining us on one of our many radio partners across America or you're listening via our podcast, which is available on Apple's platform, uh, their podcasting platform, as well as Google Play, uh, very easy to find us. Uh, if you're listening on the radio, listening on the podcast, man, we're so glad that you're with us. Hope that you stay with me over the next hour as I seek to deconstruct the negative perception that the world has of Christians by boldly discussing relevant topics in an honest and genuine way. Uh, I want to go ahead and get this out of the way. It's important for us to hear from you, the listening audience. There's several ways uh, that we can connect, several bits of contact information, ways that you can reach out to us. Uh, first, there is good old-fashioned email, info at outlawradio.org. Again, info at outlawradio.org. Drop us an email, ask us a question, challenge a topic. Uh, nothing is off limits. Uh, we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlaw. Uh, again, facebook.com slash Outlaw. Like us, follow us. We're on Twitter. If you're into Twitter, our handle is at radio underscore outlaw. Again, if you have any questions about something said on the show, you want to challenge an opinion you didn't like, you want to submit topics uh, for future episodes, uh, nothing is off limits, ways to reach out. All of this uh, is found easily on our website, which is outlawradio.org. Again, outlawradio.org. As mentioned, I pastor a church. Calvary 316. And unlike <laughs> unlike most, uh, I am teaching presently, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Leviticus. The title of my series is The Precedent for Grace, looking at grace here in the heart of the law. One of the reasons that I ended up uh, deciding to teach through Leviticus Aside from the fact that, that I teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible, that's kind of our MO, it's what we do on Sunday mornings. Uh, no one wants to hear my opinions on politics or this, that, and the other. Uh, that's what you're here on the radio <laughs> on the radio for. But I just teach God's words. As Pastor Chuck Smith, who started Calvary Chapel, once said, we simply teach God's words simply. So I'm, I'm working through the book of Leviticus. The other reason that I wanted to do this is that uh, recently there have been uh, voices within Christianity, even within Calvary Chapel, of which I'm a part, uh, that have been downplaying the importance of teaching through the Old Testament, saying how, uh, how it lacks any type of a relevant message for uh, today's modern culture. I couldn't disagree uh, more. So to kind of make my point, I'm teaching through the book of Leviticus. Recently, taught through Leviticus 16, and what a cool chapter, a very cool chapter. Now, I'm not going to read the entirety of the chapter to you, but I, but I do want to read the first few verses just to kind of set the stage, some of the context uh, for what happens in this really, really, really radical passage. Uh, Leviticus 16, beginning with verse 1, the chapter opens that the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. 
when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Now, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't expect you to have a lot of uh, like Leviticus brushed off. But back in chapter nine and ten, there was a very interesting series of events that took place on like the very first day that Aaron and his sons were on the job acting as the priesthood and this newly formed tabernacle. In fact, things on this first day on the job were going swimmingly before taking an unexpected turn for the worse. A- after Aaron and his boys finished making all the various sacrifices on behalf of the congregation, these were sacrifices articulated in Leviticus 1 through 7, we read that the glory of the Lord, this, this moment that the children of Israel are gathered around the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord comes down, it appears in the tabernacle. And then fire comes out from the Holy of Holies and consumes the offering. This supernatural fire roaring out from the midst of the Holy of Holies was seen as confirmation that these sacrifices that they had made for atonement had been accepted by the Lord. And in response, uh, we're told at the end of chapter 9 that the people of Israel, all of the people, the congregation, they shouted for joy and they fell on their faces And they worshiped and praised the Lord. And and while that's happening, this incredible moment of jubilee, this exuberance quickly turns into horror. Leviticus 10 verse 1 immediately transitions. We're, We're told that Nadab and Abihu, the two oldest sons of Aaron, offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord, like on their very first day of the job in like one sensational moment, literally two fifths of the entire priesthood, like everything has been building to this one moment, two fifths of the priesthood get fired, (laughs) consumed. In fact, the same consuming fire that had indicated just moments before God's acceptance of their offerings had now displayed his rejection of Nadab and Abihu. This dramatic and public judgment served to illustrate that these men's actions, God would never, ever, 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 ever tolerate them. Now, in light of the seriousness of the task, as the story unfolds, Aaron and his two sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, they've got no, they've got no other choice. They've got to suck it up. They've got to bury their emotions. They've got to finish out their priestly duties. They still have a job to finish. They don't exactly do things the way God had instructed, but Moses is content. The chapter closes. And then you get these weird chapters immediately. Chapters 11 through 15 kind of bluntly transition to a whole new subject matter, the holiness code. But, but Leviticus 16 brings back up the events of chapter 10, and, and that's important. And In fact, again, I'll, I'll reiterate verse 1. It says that after the death of the two sons of Aaron, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron. Like the idea is that God has something very important he wants to articulate to Aaron through Moses in Leviticus 16 that is specifically connected to what's just happened to his two oldest sons. Now, speaking very broadly, chapter 16 of Leviticus documents for us the procedures associated with what becomes known in the Hebrew as Yom Kippur, the English translation, the Day of Atonement. In God's wisdom, he specifically designates 
one day of the year, in fact, according to verse 29 of this chapter, the 10th day of the seventh month, this one day, the high priest would be instructed to enter behind the veil, would be instructed to go into the Holy of Holies and perform a set of procedures to make atonement, not just for himself, but ultimately the sins of the people. Now, before we get to the particulars, I I do want for a moment to explain why the Day of Atonement is now being articulated to Aaron in light of the actions of Nadab and Abihu. Now, I don't want to go back uh, and relitigate and explain what was so profane about their offering that God would have to, to strike them down, right? I, you can go to calvary316.tv, our media page. You can listen to my commentary of Leviticus 10 for more information. But chapter 16 infers that another contributing factor to God's swift judgment centers on the reality that Nadab and Abihu likely ventured when they offered profane fire, they ventured into the Holy of Holies, that they did this abominable thing in the presence of the Lord. In fact, in Leviticus 10 and 16, you'll find that they made their offerings, quote, before the Lord. Logically, it, it, would, make, and it would make sense, right? That God would use such an occasion as Nadab and Abihu going into a place they had no business going to now articulate how that place, the holy place of the tabernacle, the holy of holies, was to be treated. Chapter 16, it explains who could enter. No priest could enter the Holy of Holies, but the high priest. And only the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies one day a year. And what was he to do when entering the Holy of Holies? Well, chapter 16 explains these things. But more importantly, it also articulates why it was important Aaron and every high priest obey these particular instructions. For as illustrated by Nadab and Abihu, disobedience would result in death. The tabernacle. Let me take it just a second and just kind of give you an overview, the blueprint of the tabernacle. The complex was shaped like a rectangle and was defined by a perimeter fence made up of animal skins. And no matter where the tabernacle was was erected, it was always set up facing east, with the only entrance to the tabernacle, the complex itself, being a, a gate built into the side of the fence facing east, the eastern side. Now, as you enter from the east, working your way east to west, you'd first encounter a bronze altar, large bronze altar, in the outer courtyard. This is where all the offerings and sacrifices were made, the burnt offerings, the bronze altar. Then before actually entering the tent of meeting, you'd find a, a bronze basin that would be filled with water for the ceremonial cleansing of the priest. Now, at that point, you would enter a door, again, on the eastern side, entering the tent, and the space of the tent, the tabernacle, was divided into two different rooms separated by a thick veil. In the first room, on the right-hand side, you would have what's known as the table of showbread. On the left side, you would have the golden candlestick, the menorah. Interesting, Jesus called himself both the bread of life as well as the light of the world. The final piece of furniture right in front of the veil would be the altar of incense. Now, once you went behind the veil in the smaller room known as the Holy of Holies, you'd find one piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant, with what was known as the mercy seat on top of it. And it was here that the presence of God would dwell. Incredible. Now, if you read through Leviticus 16, which we're not going to do, 
I'm just going to kind of summarize these things. But before the high priest ever stepped foot behind the veil on the Day of Atonement, his day would require a lot of preparation. Like first, the high priest would have to remove his normal ornate garments. He would have to wash his body entirely before donning a simple white linen getup. It's worth pointing out these holy garments as they're described were really just the common attire of all the other priests. What happened on the Day of Atonement was reserved for the high priest and the high priest alone. In fact, we're told in chapter 16, no other man was allowed into the the tabernacle while the high priest was going through his, his procedures. Aside from changing his garments from the high priest garb to kind of the normal priestly garments, these linen garments, the high priest would also select one ram that would be offered towards the end of the day as a burnt offering for the people, as well as two kids of the goats, which would be used for their sin offering, the sin offering for the people. Now, these two goats, again, for the sin offering, it was interesting. We're told that they were to be presented before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle, and then the high priest would cast lots, dice, which would then designate one of the goats for the Lord, and the other would be designated as a scapegoat. Now, rabbinical traditions say that in order to make this identifying contrast between the goat that would die and the one that would ultimately be let go, the scapegoat would have a scarlet cord wrapped around its neck. Now, lastly, before going into the veil, into the presence of God, this high priest would have to make offerings for himself. He'd offer a bull for his sin offering. He would have to make sure there was nothing defiling about himself before entering the presence of God. We're going to continue this thought. Don't go anywhere uh, for more of the Outlaw Radio Show. One of the most important visions of the Outlaw Radio Show is our desire to challenge you to think critically, ask relevant questions, and then pursue answers on your own. The sad reality is many Christians fail to reflect Christ because they don't know what they believe or why they believe what they do. This is why, in addition to the Outlaw Radio Show tackling tough topics you might not hear at church, it is our desire to equip, inspire and challenge you to dig into God's Word and wrestle with these complex topics on your own. To help you in this important process, we want you to check out blueletterbible.org. It would be an understatement to say that this website will transform the way you study the Bible. In fact, it will revolutionize it. Aside from their treasure trove of free online commentaries, blueletterbible.org also has an incredible word search function, making it super simple to dive into the original language behind a text. So if you want to dig deeper into your study of scripture and in the process, learn and grow, we encourage you to check out blueletterbible.org today. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. I'm talking today about Leviticus 16 and specifically the Day of Atonement. And preparing for this day, the day would really begin with a high priest taking off his priestly garments, his high priestly robe, the breastplate, the ornate designs, the colors. Uh, He had a unique outfit, the high priest, but he had to take it off, wash himself, and then don just linen garments. He would would select a, a, a ram, which would be part of the offerings for the people. He would select a bull, that would be for himself. He would select two goats. He would cast dice, designating one of the two goats to be the scapegoat. A scarlet cord would be wrapped around its neck. The other goat would, well, (laughs) it would be sacrificed. 
The last thing is this high priest, because he's entering the presence of God. One day a year, he would enter into the Holy of Holies. He had to make sure he was good, that there was nothing impure or off in his own life, because, well, frankly, if there were, swift judgment would result. Now, as you work your way through chapter 16, you're getting yourself kind of through the, the flow of the text. The high priest is going to go in and out of the Holy of Holies on three separate occasions to do three separate tasks. First, he's, he's going to go in and he's going to offer incense. Secondly, he's going to go in to make atonement for himself using the blood of the bull that he's already sacrificed and drained its blood. Thirdly, he'll exit the Holy of Holies after making atonement for himself. He'll kill the, the goat. Remember, there's two goats, one for the sin offering. He'll kill the goat, drain its blood, and then go back in to make atonement for the people. Again, I encourage you to read Leviticus 16. Uh, I'm giving you a bit of a flyby. But in verse 2 of this chapter, we're told that the presence of the Lord manifested there on the mercy seat above the ark as a cloud, which was consistent with how the presence of the Lord often interacted with the people. A cloud would descend on top of Mount Sinai when when the Lord would give uh, the the tablets of stone to Moses. The, the, The presence of the Lord would manifest there in the wilderness, leading the people as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The presence of the Lord rested on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant as a cloud. And what an incredible scene as the high priest, his first time going in now to the Holy of Holies, we're told that he, with one hand, has fresh incense. And then in his other hand, he's got a censer that he's already placed burning coals from, uh, from the, 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 the bronze altar. So he enters and he takes the the incense and he puts it on the burning coals in the censer and the smoke begins billowing out, merging with the cloud in which God dwelt there in the Holy of Holies. What an awesome scene. Awesome scene. Now, once completed, the high priest will, will exit the Holy of Holies. Again, he'll dispose of the censer and he'll pick up a bowl that contains the blood of the bull that he's already slaughtered for himself. Verse 14 tells us that upon entering now for the second time, he takes the blood of the bull and he sprinkles it with his finger on the mercy seat seven times. The word sprinkle probably be better translated as, as splattered. Seven times completion. The blood making atonement for himself. Well, at this point, he'll exit. And we're told in verse 15, he goes out and he kills one of these two goats, the one that was designated for the Lord as a sin offering for the people. And he drains his blood into a bowl and he takes that blood back into the veil, this third and final trip into the Holy of Holies. And he does the same thing he did with the blood of the bull. Seven times he splatters it there upon the mercy seat. And we're told that he does this to make atonement for the place, for the uncleanness of the children of Israel, for their transgressions, for their sins. There's this purifying agent. Now the idea that's being articulated here on the day of atonement, because as you get later into the chapter, we find some interesting language. In fact, on this seventh 
on this 10th day of the seventh month, the Lord tells them that this would be a statute forever. It would be about atonement, about cleansing, to cleanse the people of their sins before the Lord. As a result, it would be a Sabbath day, a solemn day of rest. They were to do no work. In fact, we're told that they were to afflict their souls. Like the idea of all of this language is that on the day of atonement, the people would do nothing because something was being done for them. In fact, the people actually played zero role whatsoever in any of the procedures or protocols. Everything was being done. The only person working on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, was the high priest. Everyone took a day off. It was a day of solemn rest. All activities stopped. National activities screeched to a halt. The high priest worked and everyone stopped working. And they would take time to consider their sins, the cost of atonement. Now, in order to understand the overarching significance of of what's happening on this day of atonement, it's important to keep in mind that the tabernacle itself, this tabernacle of meeting situated in the midst of the camp of Israel, it wasn't just a tent. According to Acts chapter 7, Hebrews 8, among other places, We're told that Moses was given the blueprints of the tabernacle. He was instructed to to build this tent according to a pattern that God had showed him of the throne room of heaven. Like understand the tent situated in the midst of the camp of Israel was unlike any other place on earth. It was radical. It was revolutionary. It was different. The tabernacle was this place in which the lines between the temporal and the eternal got blurred. It was a a point, a portal, so to speak, where, where the physical and the spiritual intertwined. The tabernacle was this location on earth in the midst of the camp of Israel where mortal sinful man had access into the heavenly realm, which not only explains why God ends up being so specific about the creation of the tabernacle, and and he is. I mean, down to the thread that's used and the dimensions was modeled after the throne room of heaven, but it also helps us see why God's so particular about the activities that were to take place within the walls of the tabernacle. You know, contrary to popular opinion, God really does care Not just that sinful man approaches him, but he cares how he's approached by man. Over and over over again, not just in chapter 16, but in Leviticus, but for our purposes, specifically chapter 16, you're going to find this word holy, the holy place. It's repeated all throughout our passage. But what's interesting is that the word holy is introduced in a really bizarre place. The very first mention of the word holy and all of scripture is in Exodus chapter three, verse five, Moses, who has been out in the wilderness, in the desert for 40 years, feeling like a failure, just Moses and sheep. He comes across this burning bush that's burning, but it's not burning. And what's bizarre is it talks and it knows his name, Moses, Moses. 
And from the burning bush, God instructs Moses to do something interesting. He says, to remove your sandals, quote, for the place that you're standing was holy ground. First mention of the word holy in the entire Bible. You see, the tabernacle, this place of meaning, it was a holy place because within her walls dwelt the presence of Almighty God. With that in mind, you can understand why human access sinners, why the, our access into the Holy of Holies was so restricted, right? And why even entering a dicey proposition for any sinful man, no one other than high priest was ever allowed to enter that space, the Holy of Holies, because the presence of God was there. And even then he could only go behind the veil one day a year. And what's more, only three times on that day, he was allowed with very particular activities Additionally, as illustrated by the judgment of Nadab and Abihu and then reinforced by the Lord's candor to Aaron that he would die if he entered any other day but Yom Kippur, the stakes in entering the Holy of Holies, even in an ideal dynamic, were incredibly high. The first key to unpacking the significance of Leviticus 16 is to understand that at its core, the Day of Atonement was all about sinful man gaining access to the presence of a holy God through a single mediator who would work on behalf of all of the people, the high priest. The second key centers upon what would then result from the high priest's important work on this particular day. That his activities were designed to provide the people two things, atonement, and cleansing. Now, when we come back from our break, we're going to kind of pick up this thought uh, right there, atonement and cleansing. But with the minute or so that I have left, I again want to just reiterate that every episode of the Outlaw Radio Show is podcasted. If you're listening on the radio, we're so thankful that you are. We're so thankful that we have radio partners across America, uh, real ministers of the gospel, Radio is uh, it's a seed-sowing ministry. It's like filling up a bunch of helium balloons with a message, letting them go, and you have no idea where they land, how they end up. Our radio partners are just a huge part of what we're doing here with Outlaw Radio. But every episode, because of the limitations of radio, we understand you can't be in your car for the entire 52-minute show. If you have to leave and you can't listen to the episode in its entirety, go to outlawradio.org. On the top right-hand side, you'll see podcast. If you click there, there's quick links. If you're an Apple fan, boom, you click the link, you'll be redirected to our podcast on the Apple platform. We're also available Google Play. Every episode podcasted in its entirety. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere for more of the Outlaw Radio Show. You know, what Zach just shared is a truly important thing for you to remember as a listener. There are radio stations all over the United States that are sharing Outlaw Radio. You're listening right now to this broadcast on this local station. Would you reach out to that radio station and thank them for carrying programs like Outlaw Radio? It's a thankless job at times. They could use your encouragement. So reach out to this radio station. Tell them thanks for carrying Outlaw Radio and other Bible teaching programs And stay with us. Zach will be back in a moment with part two of the Outlaw Radio Show. 
For some of us, hearing that grace is present in the book of Leviticus may seem a bit foreign. But here's Zach with more about the obvious presence of grace in the book of Leviticus. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. We're talking about the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. And the first key to understand uh, to understand what the Day of Atonement was all about was the fact that it was the one day of the year where access to the presence of God was granted to a single mediator, a high priest, who could enter on behalf of all of the people. The second key then centers upon what the high priest would do for the people, that in these offerings he would make, while the entire nation took a Sabbath, the high priest working on their behalf in the Holy of Holies would offer sacrifices, blood, for both atonement and cleansing. This word atonement you find in the Hebrew is the word kafar. The word, again, it's all over the book of Leviticus. But its first use actually goes back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 14, when Moses, when I say Moses, God, instructed Noah to make an ark of gopher wood and to cover it, kafar, inside and outside with pitch. And if you're familiar with the story, it was this covering of pitch that ultimately protected Noah and his family from the judgment that would destroy the world with a flood. The word atonement, kafar, it just means to cover. And yet we know that the word atonement possesses a much deeper theological meaning as it relates to our human sin. Not only does the word describe a process by which our sins are covered over, to be no longer attributed or seen by God, but atonement also results and a reconciled relationship with our Creator. I love the way that John Corson defines atonement. He defines atonement as at-one-ment. The entire purpose for the high priest going behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, making these various sin and burnt offerings on behalf of the people, sprinkling blood upon the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, was to make atonement for sin on behalf of the people knowing there was nothing the people could do to make atonement on their own. It was a work that the high priest did for the people. In the end, it was the blood of a substitutionary sacrifice that was accepted by God, that not only covered over the people's sins, making them right before the Lord, or what we call righteous, but it was the blood that also acted as a purifying or a cleansing agent. In fact, as you read through Leviticus 16, this blood was used to purify all kinds of things all throughout the holy place. Amazingly, not only had the debt for sin been paid, but by the blood, any evidence the people had ever been delinquent had been washed away. It's as though running up a huge debt, credit card debt, not only having that debt satisfied, but then having your credit profile, your credit report, a sponge, like it never ever happened. We call that justification or or to be seen by God just as if I'd never even sinned. I'm right and I'm justified. Now one of the unique aspects of the Day of Atonement was how this deeper spiritual work was illustrated for the people. In verse 5, the high priest again was to select from the congregation two goats as a sin offering. As I mentioned, lots would be cast. One goat would receive a death sentence. The other, designated by the scarlet cord, would be the scapegoat. The scapegoat. In the Hebrew, the, the word we have is Azazel. 
and admittedly, the word is complicated. I'm not going to go through all the theories of what the word means. Other than to say that the best definition seems to be the one that takes away. That that's what Azazel means. And we reached that conclusion for what that goat, the scapegoat, would accomplish on the Day of Atonement. To illustrate for the people the complete atonement that had been provided for them through the death of the first goat on behalf of their sins. That by the death of the goat, the splashing of the blood, that forgiveness had been given, they've been justified. To illustrate what the first goat accomplished, the high priest would come out into the outer courtyard with the Azazel, the second goat, and he'd put his hands on its head and he'd begin to publicly confess all of the sins of the people, transferring them to the head of the goat. Then we're told that the Azazel, after this process was done, would be given over and led by the hand of a, quote, suitable man far from the camp into the wilderness, never to be seen or heard from again. I mentioned earlier a rabbinical tradition that claimed a scarlet cord was tied around the neck of the Azazel that would distinguish him from the goat that was sacrificed. Well, it's the same source that records that this suitable man upon taking the Azazel out into the wilderness and finally releasing it, would remove the scarlet cord. He would come back. He would go through his washings in order to re-enter the camp as stipulated according to Leviticus 16. But he would take the scarlet cord and he would hang it on the gate of the tabernacle. And over the next few weeks, that scarlet cord would change from red to white demonstrating, confirming that God had indeed forgiven and removed the sins of the people, that their sins had been placed on the Azazel and the Azazel was gone. The goat had left the building. Now, I know it's a rabbinical tradition and and, then they can be very unreliable. It's not biblical. But you know what's interesting? In Isaiah chapter one, the prophet tells us what? He records the words of the Lord that though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Where does Isaiah get the imagery of scarlet changing to white? Could it be this tradition? Furthermore, both the Mishnah and the Talmud record that roughly 40 years leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that the scarlet cord, this miracle that had been happening for a thousand years, had stopped. The scarlet cord had stopped turning white. Huh. 40 years, 70 AD, 30. I wonder what happened. (laughs) Now, practically, we understand that the Day of Atonement has some drawbacks. In fact, the drawbacks are obvious. Like, for starters, the atonement, cleansing, forgiveness provided by the blood of bulls and goats sprinkled upon the mercy seat proved insufficient, right? I mean, every single year, the exact same ritual was required. Every year whole new set of sacrifices had to be made. You know, atonement in this context may have provided a covering for past sins, but it was powerless to deal with man's internal sin condition. To this point in Hebrews 10 verse 4, we're told very clearly that it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Like in the end, the only sufficient sacrifice and blood that could permanently atone for our sins, human sin would have to be that of a sinless, perfect human sacrifice. Speaking of insufficient sacrifice, the other brutal reality is that on the Day of Atonement, they also had an an ineffective high priest 
who because of his own sin nature had to first offer for himself atonement. Like half his day is revolving around offering effective offerings for himself before he can offer sacrifices for others. Furthermore, it's, it's true that access to God here on the day of atonement was predicated upon a singular place on earth, the tabernacle, later the temple, and it was limited to one day. Case in point, a serious matter would arise for the Jews concerning the day of atonement when the place no longer existed. The flaws are obvious, right? Limited access, an effective priest, insufficient sacrifice. So one kind of has to ask, like, what's the point? Now, here's the point. And we find this with so many of the concepts established in, in the book of Leviticus. But the Day of Atonement, these pr- protocols for Leviticus 16 are significant because, here's why, they establish a legal precedent by which the work of Jesus would be accomplished on our behalf. In fact, that, that's kind of like the core key to understanding Leviticus at all, that these laws set the precedent for a work Jesus would accomplish later on. Like because of Leviticus 16, Jesus can be our effective high priest. Hebrews chapter 7, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those priests, speaking of those in the past, to offer sacrifices for his own sins and then for the people, for Jesus did once for all when he offered himself. Aaron as high priest. What a humbling was required. He had to lay aside his high priestly garments, taking upon himself these simple linen garbs. You see, in much the same way to be our high priest, to offer lasting atonement on our behalf, Jesus had to first lay aside his heavenly robes and don common attire, humanity. In Philippians 2, Paul writes that Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. And yet, in the similar manner as Aaron, when Jesus was done with his work, offering atonement for the people, he returned to heaven, took back his rightful place in glory. And because Jesus is an effective high priest, there's no limitation now on our access In Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, there was one day a year man could enter God's presence, but today we have been given free access at any point, at any time, to the throne room of grace through Jesus. And what's even more incredible is according to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, God no longer needs a tent because he has created in us temples of the living God, the Holy Spirit. We're going to continue this thought. Don't go anywhere with the Outlaw Radio Show. Did you know beyond the unique content of the Outlaw Radio Show, Pastor Zach Adams also has an extensive teaching archive available online for free? If you love to study the Bible, we encourage you to check out c316.tv. Currently, Pastor Zach is teaching verse by verse through the Gospel of John, but c316.tv also has video, audio, and sermon notes for the Gospel of Mark, the book of Acts, Ephesians, Genesis, Philemon, Jonah, Philippians, as well as an in-depth study on the Olivet Discourse and Jesus' seven letters to the churches recorded in Revelation 3 and 4. 
with over 17,000 minutes of expositional Bible teaching and more than 2,775 pages of written sermon transcripts, C316.tv is a must-visit for any serious student of the Bible. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. We're talking about the Day of Atonement. And truth be told, there was some, some real limitations, limited access, an ineffective priest, insufficient sacrifice. There were problems to the Day of Atonement. And yet the Day of Atonement established a framework that Jesus would work as our high priest going behind the veil to make atonement on our behalf. Because of Leviticus 16, Jesus is our high priest an effective high priest. We no longer have a limitation on our access before the throne room of God because we we have Jesus. But Jesus is also our sufficient sacrifice. You know, one of the things I'm really blown away with about Leviticus 16 is the idea that on the day of atonement, the sin offering included two goats that possessed two distinct roles. And what's amazing about that is that both goats illustrate two separate works of Jesus. Now, obviously, Jesus is the goat who was killed to provide us atonement. Like this goat on the cross, Jesus was the ultimate atoning sacrifice. His blood was spilt for our sins. And by his covering, the covering of his blood, we're forgiven and our lives washed clean. Though our sins were as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, we're told, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of of his grace. It's interesting, but leading up to the time of Christ, a lot of people don't talk about this, but the Ark of the Covenant was missing. Really going all the way back to Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Israel, the destruction of the temple, the Ark was gone. It was the one critical piece of furniture, not in Zerubbabel's reconstructed temple following the Babylonian exile, nor in the, uh, the remodel initiated, commenced, funded by Herod the Great. My point is that for 600 plus years leading up to Jesus, the procedures of the Day of Atonement had been impossible because there was no ark, no mercy seat at all. You know, I imagine when the veil was torn following the death of Jesus, when he cries out to Telestai, it is finished. When that veil was torn, we're told from top to bottom, it had to have been an eerie and somber scene. Why? Because as the veil is torn, what did they see? Nothing. <laughs> the Holy of Holies was empty. Like, what, what exactly was the high priest scattering blood seven times upon? Now, I contend that just maybe the first scene witnessed by Aaron here in Leviticus 16, some 1,500 years earlier, actually did manifest one final time, three days after Jesus' death. Follow me. But if you read through John chapter 20, by, by verse 11, Peter and John, they've come to the garden tomb. They've confirmed Jesus' body is missing, and they've left. In fact, they've left Mary Magdalene standing outside of the tomb weeping. And at some point, we're told that Mary decides to stoop down and look into the tomb for herself. And notice what she sees. Verse 12 of John 20 says that she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus laid. Now, imagine that. Here you have in the garden tomb a rectangular-shaped ledge upon which Jesus' body had been laid. Because the tomb has never been used, the seat itself likely bore seven bloodstains. Why seven? Well, there were seven locations where Jesus 
had been wounded, his head, the crown of thorns, his back, the scourging, his side with the spear, his two hands and his feet. In addition to these seven blood splatters and linen clothes, right? The burial clothes. Mary also sees two angels sitting specifically on each side of this box, each of the far sides. In Exodus 25, in the creation of the Ark of the Covenant, God stipulated that they were to make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. (laughs) A rectangular shaped box. And they were to make two cherubim of gold. Angels. Placing them where? At the two ends of the mercy seat. While three days earlier, the religious world had peered into the Holy of Holies and saw a room that illustrated their religion, emptiness. On a new day, resurrection day, Mary looked into a tomb and saw a mercy seat upon which the presence of God had rested for three days. And she saw the splattered blood seven times for our redemption. The linen cloths, a high priest had indeed been present but he was no longer there. His work was completed. And yet as amazing as this is, I want to close our time by just kind of returning back to this Azazel, the scapegoat, because the picture deepens even further. Understand the reason that Jesus was able to take upon himself our sin, centered on the legal precedent established by the high priest's ability on the day of atonement to actually transfer the sins and thereby guilt of the people onto this goat, the Azazel. Again, this is pure, purely tradition. But when it came to the point in this day where the Azazel, after the high priest has confessed all the sins upon its head, was to then be led out of the camp and into the wilderness, the people would cry out, away, away, away. Their sins were being led away. How glorious. In fact, because the goat was seen with such disdain because of what it symbolized, It became a custom in Israel that the suitable man charged with leading that goat into the wilderness would end up being a Gentile. Now think about that for a moment. Does that sound familiar? The Azazel taking upon itself the sins of the people before a Gentile led it out of the camp as a mob of Jews cheered away, away, away. In John 19, we read, now it was the day It was preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour and Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king, but they cried out away with him, away with him, crucify him. Little did they know they were sending away the Azazel. The sin offering demanded two goats, one who bore the sins of the people and died and another who carried their sins away and lived. Friend, if you're listening to this today and and Satan is beating that condemnation drum in your life, he's bringing up your sins, he's reminding you of your insufficiencies, he's he's telling you how, how you're not good enough, how you keep letting God down, how you keep making a mockery of the cross. I want you to know right now that Jesus not only died to forgive you, but as your Azazel, he lives to carry those sins away. There's a story of a woman who had a relationship with God and her priest made fun of her for this. So the priest came one day, said, you say you talk to God. She says, I do. He said, he said, well, how about this? When you're talking to God, ask God what I did in college that no one knows about. Let's see if God really speaks to you. So a week passes, she comes back. The priest comes to her and says, well, 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 what did God tell you? She says, oh, God and I, we spoke quite a bit about this. He says, God told you? 
He says, well, she says, not exactly. I kept bringing it up, but God kept replying, I don't, I don't remember. Jeremiah 31, their sins I will remember no more. Psalms 103, as far as the east is from the west, he's removed our transgression. Isaiah 44, God says, I've blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, like a cloud your sins. Micah 7, verse 19, God has cast our sin into the depths of the sea. They've been placed onto Jesus, and our Azazel has taken them away. But I close with this. While the first work of Jesus has been completed, our forgiveness, we've, we've been made right, we've been justified, I want you to know, friend, that Jesus' work as our Azazel continues today. Today, Jesus wants you and I to still come up, come to him and still lay our sins upon him, the things that are weighing us down. He wants to give us a fresh start. I probably can reason that there are some of you carrying around burdens that Jesus wants to free you from right this very moment. As we find in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, friend, cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Well, you've been listening to the Outlaw Radio Show, a special episode about the Day of Atonement, the Azazel. The goat has left the building. I love it. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to do two things. First, contact your local Christian radio station. Tell them you're thankful they're carrying this type of programming, Outlaw Radio, in your community. Secondly, please visit our website. Our website is outlawradio.org. From the site, you can easily access our podcast. It's available on iTunes, Google Play. You can listen to this episode in its entirety or all previous episodes. We also want to connect. We're on Twitter, Facebook. Our email is info at outlawradio.org. Once again, I'm Zach Adams, and I hope you join me again this time next week for the Outlaw Radio Show. You've been listening to the one and only Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. As mentioned, if you like what you heard, be sure to connect with us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter or check out our website by visiting outlawradio.org. To listen again to today's show, access our daily two-minute broadcast or full-length episodes, check out the Outlaw Radio podcast, available on both iTunes and Google Play. Once again, don't forget, we want to hear from you. If you have questions, want to challenge something that was said, or would like to submit topics you'd like to hear Zach discuss on air, you can either email us at info at outlawradio.org, or you can leave a voicemail at 678-883-3316. Finally, programs like Outlaw Radio are wonderful tools God can use to change lives. But as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. First, if you're not tithing to your local church, you need to do so. And yet, if God has laid it upon your heart to extend your generosity above and beyond your tithe, we'd ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Outlaw Radio. Every donation ensures this show remains on your local station. To learn how you can become a financial partner, please visit outlawradio.org. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you join us again next week for the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams.
Outlaw Radio is a ministry of Calvary 316 in partnership with his productions. 